Please open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 9. In this section we see yet more disasters that will come during that great tribulation period right before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see again and again is that these disasters, just like other ones throughout history, are not coincidences. They are not simply the natural order of humankind. They are sent by God. God is in control. He predestined everything. He carries it out by providence. So in Revelation, he is predicting these tragedies and disasters and bad times that he will send. That applies also in our lives when we go through a bad time. We need to realize this isn't just the way things are. God has allowed them to come our way. What hope would there be if God had no control over this? There are those that say, no, God has nothing to do with bad times in our life or in the future. That doesn't offer us any hope because if God can't prevent it, he can't help us. Christians in the Great Tribulation will be helped. They never give up. There's a verse in Revelation that says, this is the perseverance of the saints. None of them are lost. They're protected and they continue through the rough times. But what about the non-Christians during this Great Tribulation, just like in history? And also... How do you react when there are bad times in your life? I hope you realize God is still in control. And one of the reasons he sends bad times is to not only nudge us, but to push us to himself. And we shouldn't resist that. Run to God. Okay, let's jump into the text with verse 13. <clears throat> Then the sixth angel sounded. So we've been seeing these angels one by one blowing their trumpets. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. They're told to release these other angels. We're not told which of the four angels. But we do know from the Bible there's a hierarchy of angels. Of course, there's the archangel like Michael, and the principalities, powers, dominions, thrones, and then guardian angels. But there's a hierarchy like in the military. So the order goes out, release these four angels that are now bound in this one area and let them go elsewhere. Mentions in there the area of the river Euphrates. Did you know that river is one of the few mentioned even in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, chapter 2 of Genesis? If you know about Middle Eastern geography, it's parallel to the river Tigris. They meet down here and they meet back up again in the mountains. And that's a very fertile area in that part of the Middle East is where a lot of the enemies of Israel came from. Assyria, Babylon, Persia and even the Parthians. So we're told here that the voice goes out, release them so that they can move out of that area. 
The Bible says that angels move around, but they generally stay in one general area, and then God will move them to another one. It's kind of, I don't know if any of any deer hunters here, deer hunters know that a deer rarely goes one mile from where it was born. And if they go outside of that area, they feel very skittish and dangerous. Well, here God says, let these angels go out beyond just simply the river Euphrates and move around. So angels are told not only to move around, but fallen angels too. They tend to stay in one area to concentrate. But then now God is saying during the great tribulation, let the good angels and the bad angels move around and do these things that are about to happen. It says, release them. And so they're released. Verse 15, <clears throat> so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The Bible says God has predestined everything that will happen in history. No coincidences, no fate, no chance, and he is foreordained everything to the smallest detail. And it says here, even to the month and the day and the hour and the very second. No chance, no fate. It's all ordered by God. God is in control. And so here God reveals to the angels, it's time now for you to act. Don't just stay over there. Go. I was reminded of that word go as I thought back to General Dwight Eisenhower during World War II. For over two years, the Western Allies had planned the invasion of Europe to go after the Nazis into their own territory, so they planned the D-Day invasion. They stocked up in tens of thousands of American soldiers as well as British, Canadian, and Australians were gathered in the southern part of England waiting for the word Go. And they stockpiled thousands of tanks and aircraft and all sorts. And then on June 5th, they said, it's time to go. And they said, wait, nope, nope, nope. Bad weather. We'll lose most of our troops. And so it came down to Dwight Eisenhower's decision. And the weatherman said, there's going to be an opening tomorrow. And if we don't take it tomorrow, we won't have an opportunity for at least another 30 days because of the moon and the tides and all that. And all the chiefs of staff from these different countries were waiting to see what he would say. And he said, gentlemen, we've got to go. The time is right. If we don't, we'll lose time. And so he paused and just said one word, go. And they went, and you know the rest of the history. On the next day, June 6th, tens of thousands of soldiers went as they were ordered, and that led to the downfall of the Third Reich. Now, God didn't have to delay. He knows weather, and he has everything planned out. He doesn't say wait. At the right time, God says go. And he says to these angels, angels, go. But did you notice something else? He said go, and they went. Good angels always obey God. We should be like those angels too. When God says go, go. If he says stay, stay. If he says wait, if he says work, do whatever God says. May it be done in our lives as it is with the angels. And then the time will come for the second coming, which has also been foreordained since before the foundation of the world, down to the very month, 
week, day, hour, and second. And only God knows when that time will be. Not the angels. And not self-appointed prophecy experts that think they can predict the day that Jesus will come. But when that day comes, God will say, go. And the angels will say, yes, Lord. And they will all go because the Bible says angels will come with the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. So these angels are now released. They had been bound and limited around the river Euphrates. And it says that they were prepared just like Eisenhower's troops, you know, loading their tanks and polishing their guns. And now it says here they're released for what purpose? Look at verse 15. To kill a third of mankind. We've already seen earlier that another great plague had killed a third of the mankind. So this is either another third or a third of what's left. However you figure it, this is an enormous number. How big? What's the world population today? It's approximately 8 billion people. What if this happened tomorrow? We're talking over 2.5 billion people dying in a fairly short period of time. But this may not happen for centuries to come, and the population of the world may be far greater than 8 billion at that time. A third of mankind will die Dramatic deaths, a third. And we've already seen in Revelation, this is like what was typified in the land of Egypt when God sent plague after plague saying, let my people go. And so God's going to send another great plague here. The firstborn sons in Egypt died except for the Jews, but a third of mankind, and that's not just limited to the firstborn sons. How? It'll be a plague, we're told later. Read about the bubonic plague that killed one-fourth of Europe in the Middle Ages. A fourth of Europe. Then there's the COVID pandemic that is slowing down now. It may increase. The flu epidemic of 100 years ago and other ones. This plague will far surpass all of those and those will look like a, a, the common cold by contrast. There will be no cure for this. It will spread fast and far. Because these angels will be spreading. You see, the bubonic plague, it spread because people didn't know how it was being spread. Finally, they found out it was spread by fleas riding on the back of the rats. And if they kill the rats and the fleas can't move and it'll die off. So they started multiplying cats to kill the rats to stop the fleas. But there'll be no stopping this plague because the angels will bring it about. And there'll be no cure. And it'll spread fast and far either by... By breathing or by the water or by some other means. Just think of the implications. We've seen a little bit of this during the COVID pandemic. Hospitals will be filled to overflowing. When a third of the mankind catches it and they don't die immediately, they'll go to their doctors. Doctors will be overwhelmed. Nurses will be overworked. Many of them will quit if they don't die. There'll be death everywhere. A fourth of mankind, there'll be no more room in the cemeteries or grave diggers to dig those or funeral homes to bury them. Again, my mind went back to two incidents in World War II. Some of you remember what happened in the Warsaw Ghetto. 
where Hitler started the Holocaust by saying, round up the Polish Jews and put them in a ghetto in Warsaw, Poland, and put big fences with barbed wire and guard dogs and machine guns. Anybody tries to escape, mow them down. And so they were going to starve them out. And disease began to run rampant. The Jewish doctors tried to cure people. They said, we don't have any medicine. And people were dropping like flies, hundreds every day. And I've seen the films where people were just piled up on the street corners and on the sidewalks. And some of the noble rabbis said, we'll do an honor to the Almighty by trying to bury them somewhere. And the kids were playing with the dead bodies because it was like, like a nightmare in the Warsaw Ghetto where tens of thousands died. And that's just a foretaste of this. But then toward the end of the war, it got worse, you know, about the Holocaust. And then at the end of the war, the death camps were closed up and the SS ran away. Many of them were captured. But then as the Allies liberated the death camps, they were horrified at what they saw. Like in Dachau, the first of the concentration camps. And when Eisenhower and Patton brought in their soldiers, they were horrified. Hardened soldiers would go over and pass out or vomit. What did they see? What was left over that had not been cremated. Huge piles of bodies stacked up like firewood. And then bodies here and bodies there. And, and the soldiers would come in and they'd say, we've never seen anything like this. One of them said it's like the doors of hell have been opened up. And one soldier survived that and later, many years later, said to his son, I was there and I can't tell you what I saw. That was my father. He was in one of the armies that liberated Dachau and got there. He said, piles of dead bodies and bodies everywhere. I can't talk about it. It'll be like that in the Great Tribulation. Dead bodies everywhere because a third of mankind will die. And during this panic and hysteria, there'll be rumors and superstition. And then it'll be like craziness, the way people will react. Just like in the Warsaw Ghetto. Many of the Jews went insane when they saw dead bodies and no more hope. And then during the bubonic plague, this sounds strange, but even the children can't understand it and children like to play. Did you know that during the bubonic plague in England, children came up with a little song? And I heard a couple of children sing it in this church recently. Ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all... That was a song that was kind of crazy. Ring around the rosy, what's that? During the bubonic plague, people have these red blotches with a ring around it. Ring around the rosy. Posies, they'd bring flowers in their pockets, thinking that if they breathed that somehow that would keep the bubonic plague around them. But then, ashu, ashu, ashes, ashes, and we all fall down dead. Sounds crazy, but that's where the song came from. In the Great Tribulation, God pulls off the restraints. So rumors and superstition and dead bodies everywhere. This is what God has foreordained for mankind that has rejected God. It's worse, verses 16 to 19. Now the number of the army of the horsemen, in other words, the angels released from the river Euphrates, was 200 million. I heard the number of them. 
And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. And their powers in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Now, I remind you, this is symbolic language. This is not literal animals with tails that have a head on the end of it with all these funny colors. No, it's like the animals earlier that were described like scorpions that have power in their tails. This is symbolic language. It's not monsters, but what's it symbolic of? We we'll go back to verse 19, it says these horsemen, just like in chapter 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There are those that say, well, these are humans riding on horses. This is the cavalry with guns or spears riding on horses, this massive army of 200 million people. To which I say, don't you see this is symbolic? Wait a second, 200 million men on horses? Modern warfare does not do much with horses. Yes, our United States Army does have a cavalry battalion. They've rarely used it. But in modern warfare, they don't use horses. They use artillery and they use tanks. I still remember reading about, I'm a student of World War II. You remember what happened September 1939? Nazis moved into Poland. And the Poland didn't have much artillery or tanks. They came out by the hundreds on horseback against Nazis, and the Nazis mowed them down like a bush hog because they were no match for it. So are we going to expect 200 million men on horses? They're going to be mowed down. There's no stopping. They're going to be mowed down. Where are you going to get 200 million? There are those that say these are literal soldiers will say, well, there was an article in Time magazine once that said China had an army of 200 million soldiers, and that's what's predicted here. Other ones say India or maybe all the Muslims getting together to go against Israel. No. These are 200 million angels that have been let loose from that area to then go around the world, and there'll be no stopping them. Because angels are far more powerful than humans. Now, whether these are good or bad or both angels, this, this is symbolic, just like the ones we've seen earlier. So they go around the world here, and they have this power to kill, and it says these plagues with the fire and the smoke and the brimstone coming out of their mouths, and this will result in a third of the population of the world dying. Now, Christians will be protected by God, but what about those other two-thirds that survived? That's what we learn about in verses 20 and 21, and we'll concentrate on the rest of this message. Verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Notice the words, and they did not repent. 
Here God lists six areas, and there are more that they did not repent of. First it says they're idols. The Bible completely rejects all forms of idolatry. That's included in two of the Ten Commandments. Worship God alone and no physical statues or pictures. Here it mocks them. It says that they, they cannot see. And we find that also in the Old Testament where God mocks the idolaters. He said, you worship a stump of wood it can't see, it can't hear, it can't feel. And in the book of Psalms it says those that make them are like them because they make these idols in their own image. And what God is saying is you are spiritually blind as that idol you worship. You don't hear my voice. You don't feel me like you should. Lost sinners are as blind as a statue. They cannot see the things of God. But they do not turn from their idolatry. And now there are other idols because people will say, I don't worship a statue or a picture. They don't worship that as their God. They worship gold as their God. In gold we trust would be their motto. Money, money, money. The almighty dollar. Or they worship persons. Maybe they will be in an international TV show, international idol, just like American Idol. People will worship things, anything or anybody other than God that's first in your life is an idol. God tells us to turn from idolatry, to repent of it. Unfortunately, some people do. 2 Thessalonians 1, God commends the Thessalonians. He says, you did turn from idols to serve the living God. They won't in the great tribulation. Look at the text. And they did not repent of their idols. Secondly, it says that they should not worship demons. How'd that get in there? Demons are fallen angels. All of them are evil. They hate God. None of them have been elected. They're all going to end up in the lake of fire. But this goes together with idolatry. The Bible says very explicitly that the false gods of all pagan religions are simply demons in disguise. This is a secret they do not want us to know, but it's recorded three or four times in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 20. I would have you know that the things that Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice not to God, but to demons. Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrifice to demons and not to God. Psalm 106, 37. They even sacrifice their sons and daughters to Demons. I did a paper on this at seminary. I wish I still had the paper, but I looked at all these places that identify what is the real identity of pagan gods and goddesses. And the Bible says it. They are fallen angels in disguise. One of the Hebrew words for these gods is literally goat gods. And in the Old Testament, it was mainly Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, Molech. Go down to Egypt, it would be Isis, Osiris, and Horus, plus many others. Go to India, it would be Brahman, Vishnu, Shiva, Krishna, Kali, and thousands of others. Go to Greece, it would be Zeus. Go to Rome, it would be Jupiter and Hera and many others. Go to Northern Europe in older days, it would be Woden and Thor and the other ones. Go to Africa, there would be the tribal religions worshiping spirits. Go to the American continent and you find the American Indians worship many spirits, including the Great Spirit. And one missionary to the American Indians said the secret is their chief god is the wolf god. But what is the 
biggest or most popular false god today that's not the true God. I'll tell you his name. They call him Allah. Allah is not the one true God. Now that's the, the confession of faith of Islam. There is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is the prophet of God. They are wrong. Their Allah is not the God of the Bible. He is not the one true God. He is the most popular false God in the world today. He is a demon from hell. And these liberals amongst Protestantism and Catholicism and other ones that say, no, it's the same God and we have different ways to him. They don't know their Bible or if they do, they don't believe in it. Allah is a demon. He is an evil spirit. And many Christians that are saved out of Islam finally realize it and they say, he is a bloodthirsty, cruel God. There's evil and we worship a God now of love. All non-Christian religions worship demons in disguise. And that's fundamentally no different than just out-and-out out Satanism. Satan is the founder of all false religions. But during the Great Tribulation, they will not repent of this. They will still follow their false gods and idols. Number three, it says here they do not repent of their murders. That breaks the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Now, this is not including... Just killing, such as just war or the death penalty. But the Bible condemns all unjust killing, such as first degree murder, blood feuds, genocide, the Holocaust, assassination, armed robbery, passion killing out of jealousy, human sacrifices, which is what so many ancient... Maybe there will be a rebirth of human sacrifice in the Great Tribulation. I would not be surprised. Or this other one that police sometimes hear about, FBI certainly knows about it, what's called thrill kill. Either gang members or the super cool think, hey, let's go and kill someone at random. Thrill kill, that's murder. They won't repent of this. Nor will they repent of the number one form of murder today in the United States and in the world. Abortion. Abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, all condemned by God as murder. But they will not repent of any of this, nor will they repent of murdering Christians. Chapter 6 records the martyrs that will be killed during the tribulation. People will glorify this just like Nazis killing off Jews. To them it was a good thing. So during the tribulation with all this murder, people do not repent of it and they make Excuses for it, just like abortion and other things. Even the nice people will turn to this. Why? Because God says in the book of Proverbs, all that hate me love death. There'll be a breakdown of law and order. And today, because it's sinful nature is restrained, people still say murder is wrong. Chances are one day say, what is wrong with this? What's wrong with me killing my neighbor? There'll be this breakdown of law and order. Now today, some murderers do repent and believe in Jesus. I know. I have had letters from about 40 of them in prisons that write to me over the years. And they say, I committed murder, but now I repented and I believed in Jesus. But not in the great tribulation. It says they did not repent of their murders. Look at number four here. They do not repent of their sorceries. Now, we're not talking about harmless little ghosts and witches at Halloween or Harry Potter. 
We're talking about the black arts, what the Bible would call as the occult. Get in touch with supernatural forces for knowledge or for power, such as astrology, casting spells, hypnotism, Ouija boards, tarot cards, mediums, spirits, and many, many others, all of them strictly condemned by God. Would you know where to look that up in the Bible if you have a friend or a relative that says, come with me to this seance? How about Deuteronomy 18 or Isaiah 47? Strictly forbidden by God. But the word here is not a a, a general word for sorcery. It's a very specific word used here for a kind of sorcery or cult in which they use drugs to bring about a trance for a religious experience that they say, now I know God. The Greek word that God inspired John to write down here is the Greek word pharmakion. Does that sound familiar? Pharmakion? Pharmacy, pharmaceutical, big pharma. It's a Greek word for drugs used for religious experience. It's very old. I lived in South Texas for a number of years, and my parents used to tell me that once a year, American Indians from Oklahoma would go down there, go to a certain hill, and they would eat the little buds off the peyote cactus plants, and they would go into a trance and dance and do all sorts. It was part of their religion. Later, the Supreme Court said that's permissible. It's their sacrament. But that little peyote bud produces what's called mescaline. I hope none of you all have ever done that. It's similar to LSD. That gets... So these different religions say we use these drugs to know God or the gods. The ancient, some of the ancient religions did it with opium or magic mushrooms from which you get psilocybin. And then there are other ones that did opium from which you can get morphine, heroin, and then you get fentanyl today. And then many other drugs. People don't do it just to get a a good feel of life and a good rush, but to bring yourself to a higher plane of consciousness. And they consider that religion. When I was younger, the high priest of this was thrown out of Harvard. You remember him? Because he said, marijuana and these other ones, LSD, this is our sacrament. All these drugs come under the category of pharmacy. We're not talking about legitimate medicine. We're talking about illegitimate use of drugs for a high with a religious connotation. And that includes marijuana. Call it what you will. It's been legalized and on and on and on. I still think marijuana use should be illegal because it's wrong. Just like all these other ones here, all of these should be made strictly illegal and the law should be enforced with very strict penalties. Let me say a word to the youngsters here. Whether you're little children, teenagers, young adults, please. Please stay away from everything that's occultic and everything with drugs. It looks good. It looks cool. The cool kids do this. You see it on TV, the Internet. Please, as your friend, I tell you, please stay away from it. It is not only dangerous, it is evil. Stay away from the occult, stay away from drugs. And if you've ever done them, repent of it. But it says here they won't repent of this. So chances are, in the great tribulation, all drugs will be legalized. 
It's beginning to be like that. It's not only are states legalizing marijuana, did you know that in certain states like Oregon, they're even promoting the legalization of heroin and LSD and other such things? It should all be strictly made illegal. The fifth one, it says they do not repent of their sexual immorality. In other words, they legitimatize breaking commandment number seven. What is sexual immorality? It means all sex outside of marriage. That includes fornication, adultery, rape, perversion, paraphilia, and everything that falls under the category of LGBT. God's ethics have not changed in modern America or in the 21st century. God says it is not only sin, it's unnatural. God says it's perversion. But it's been legalized in America. It's been glorified. There are even parades glorifying this and persecuting anybody that says it's wrong. It's on TV. It's on the Internet. It's even in high places in our government. Doesn't anybody in Congress or the Supreme Court have the guts to say it is wrong, it's perversion, it should be made illegal? God says it's wrong. Our president has put members of the LGB community, including transgender perverts, in high office that boast about it. What has come to America, this is a foretaste of what's going to happen in the future where every kind of sexual immorality is legalized, every kind, and it'll be glorified. Perhaps even then it'll return to the ancient religions that practiced immorality in their religious rites and ceremonies, like the Canaanites. And what happens gradually as we see this coming in, they persecute Christians just like the Sodomites in Canaan, in Canaan in Genesis 19 went after Lot. When you oppose it, they go after you. Friends, we're in for some tough times and it'll get really bad. Christians will speak up during the Great Tribulation and that'll lead to their martyrdom. What about now? Praise the Lord, many people that have been involved in sexual immorality do repent. I have known prostitutes, homosexuals, others that have repented and have been born again. They are new creatures in Christ. Praise the Lord for them. But most today do not. In the great tribulation it says, and they did not repent of their sexual immorality. Number six, it says, nor did they repent of their thefts. In other words, breaking commandment number eight. Burglary, robbery, pickpockets, pilfering, shoplifting, identity theft. And it goes on. And people, uh, they, they defend this. You know, Antifa says, what's wrong with looting? Oh, they've got plenty. We deserve it. They're the rich capitalists that have stolen from us. People even defend this. You know what's happened in San Francisco in the last year where they said that if you, if you steal anything less than $950, just let them go. And so people are loading up their carts in the drugstores. Did you know that over 20 Walgreens have had to shut down because they can't enforce shoplifters that are going out with carts in front of policemen because the policemen have said, let them go. Breakdown of law and order. I think we'll see that in the Great Tribulation. But even greater than that, the Bible says people steal from God. Book of Malachi says, will a man rob God? 
And the biggest way that people steal from God is that they steal his glory. They are glory thieves. Now God just lists six of the sins of which people will not repent then. Notice again, and they did not repent. Even in the midst of all these tremendous disasters and death everywhere and plagues, Almost nobody will repent and believe in Christ during the great tribulation. Perhaps nobody at all. You see, God has taken the restraints off. Now he restrains sin in individual people. But one day he says, I'm going to take the restraints off. You want sin? I'll let you have it. And this will prove that they deserve to be punished by God. But he takes the restraints off and it'll get worse and worse. It'll be a nightmare on earth. But instead of repenting, they will curse God. They won't turn to God. They'll turn against God. They'll blame him, not themselves. Later in Revelation 16:9, it says this. They blaspheme the name of God and they did not repent and give him glory. Just like today, many non-Christians, when they go through a rough time, COVID or whatever, they blame God. If God was a loving God, why would he let this happen? So they blame God. They fail to see God is at work in their lives to try to get them to repent. God does three things to call lost sinners to repent. Number one, he gives them time. Revelation 2.20, and I gave her time to repent. And she did not repent. That's why sinners are still alive now. They deserve to die long ago, but God gives them time to repent. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is patient and long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But in addition to time, God gives them, secondly, positive encouragement through common grace. He gives them good times, happiness, music, Modern technology, medicine, friends, family, all these great blessings come from God's goodness. And Romans 2, 4 says, Do you despise the goodness of God, not knowing that these are meant to lead you to repentance? But people throw it back at God's face and say, I will not repent. And if that doesn't work, number three, God sends them negative warnings like disasters, major illnesses. How is that a warning? Because what God is saying in these bad times is, please repent, but if you don't, this is a foretaste of what you will get later in hell. Some sinners will just refuse to repent. Even today, they would rather die than repent of their sins. Why? Even those that have been to church and read the Bible and heard sermons like this will say, I don't care. I'm not going to turn to God. I'm not going to give up my lifestyle. I remember talking to one man when I was doing street evangelism. I said, look, even if I could answer all of your objections and all of your questions and convince you the Bible is true, would you then turn to Jesus? He says, no, not even then. I said, why not? He says, I don't want to give up my sin. That's why you say I got to give up this, that. I don't want to give up that. Why don't they repent? Because they hate God and they love their sins. Let me read you a verse from the Old Testament. This isn't anything new. Jeremiah 5, 3. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, yet they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. 
Some people will just never repent, no matter what God does. It's like when parents discipline their children. You can spank them, you can send them to the room, withhold privileges, whatever. And the goal is to get them to apologize and say, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. But sometimes parents have to spank. And my boy, my parents had to spank me hard until finally said, I give up, I won't do it again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But you know, there are sometimes parents will spank or withhold privileges, and even then the, those children will not apologize. Prison inmates that write to me say, there's some hardened criminals that will never change in prison. Put them in solitary, take away privileges, whatever. They're hardened. They will not change. And it'll be like that in the Great Tribulation. They will not repent. And this will prove that they deserve to be severely punished in hell. What if they don't repent? Jesus said this twice, Luke chapter 13. Unless you repent, you will perish. That doesn't mean annihilationism. That means punishment in hell. Far worse than the disasters of the great tribulation are the ones that people experience in their lives. Why should a person repent? To avoid going to hell. And because, and because God Almighty commands it. Acts 17.30, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. But people will not repent during the great tribulation. Notice again, and they did not repent, but they only curse God. If they won't repent when there's hell on earth, they won't repent when there's in hell and hell. There's no repentance in hell. No second chance, even a million years from now. That's how hard-hearted lost sinners are. Unless God gives them repentance, they will not. But there is still time now. God has still given sinners time to repent. He is still giving them common grace and positive incentive and negative warnings. There is still time now because you are still alive and you are not in the great tribulation yet. If you are here or listening through our media, and if you have never repented, if you've never believed Jesus Christ, heed God's invitation and his warning, and you should repent. You see, you may not live to see the great tribulation. You may die before then. Everybody here will die unless we're alive when Jesus comes and we're Christians, but don't put it off. Don't say, well, I'll repent when I'm on my deathbed. That deathbed may be tonight. You may die tomorrow. Do not put it off. One of the Puritans said, delayed repentance is no repentance. But on a positive note, God promises complete forgiveness of all all sins, including these that were listed here, full forgiveness of all sins for those that do repent and believe in Jesus. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, every single one of them, even things that you wish you'd never done, you don't even want to think about. God can forgive all your sins. 
We need to tell lost sinners the gospel and warn them of what awaits them if they do not repent. Let me put this to you as I close. One day you'll die. I'll die. There'll be a funeral for you. If you're in this church, I will probably be the one that does your funeral. And then we have a graveside service. There'll be a tombstone over your grave with your name and maybe dates. And sometimes they put a little message on there. Which of these two messages would be appropriate for your tombstone? And he did not repent. Or, thank God he repented. May God grant repentance to all of those here today so that we would be the latter and not the former. Let's pray. Father, you love us enough to warn us of hell and the great tribulation. You are in control. And you are a God of grace, willing to forgive us all of our sins. Thank you, Father, for even giving us repentance. Pray for our lost loved ones, that you would give them not just time to repent and common grace and warnings, but give them repentance, Lord. We plead with you. And now, Lord, prepare our hearts to receive communion as we remember the Lord Jesus Christ who died so that we could be forgiven. In his holy name we pray. Amen.